Good morning. So, continuing on looking at these ideas of foreshadowings and types in the Old Testament that point to Jesus or as a foreshadowing of Him, we're going to look at Melchizedek. You remember we uh, saw him last week when we were reading in the book of Hebrews, and I mentioned that we would deal with him, and today's the day we got to deal with Melchizedek. So we have to start in Genesis chapter 14, which is where he appears. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles there as we get ready to look at Melchizedek. And to start our time of worship in the Word, I would like to pray and ask for God's blessing on understanding who Jesus is through this image of Melchizedek. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of showing us things before we even understand what they are so that your glory is even greater when we come to understand them. Lord, thank you for the way that you have patiently worked in all of us, drawing us out and drawing us deeper into you. And I pray that even in this hour, you will continue to do that work of drawing us out, that each of us would see and understand what it is about you, Father, about you, Jesus, our Savior, and about you, Holy Spirit, that we need to understand and grasp this morning because of where you've brought us to in our lives and in our hearts and in our happiness and in our joys and our sorrows and our desperations. And I pray, Lord, that today your spirit would just wrap each of us up in your arms and we would sense your loving embrace and your comforting words spoken into our ears and we would know that our Father, our Savior, and our Holy Spirit is with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So who is this guy Melchizedek? And why does he even matter, right? I mean, he only appears once in all of Scripture. Yet he takes on this almost bigger-than-life image and persona throughout the rest of Scripture after you get out of Genesis. And we know nothing else about him. This is like he appears and that is on purpose. And then he disappears and that's on purpose. He never shows up ever again in Scripture except in these other places where he takes on this bigger than life persona. And God himself intentionally keeps everything about Melchizedek unknown to us except that he was the king of Salem and the priest of the God Most High. So let's start by looking at the only place where Melchizedek shows up in Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. This is where the kings from the north have come south down the Jordan River into what we now know as the Dead Sea area and attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, carried off all the people and all the plunder from there, including Lot. Abraham hears about this, then takes off in chapter 14 and goes off to rescue Lot, travels up probably north of Damascus, where he catches up to this group and attacks them, rescues Lot, brings back most of the plunder that they had taken, 
And then we get to verse 17 and we read this in the story about rescuing Lot. After his return from the defeat of Sheldelamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abraham, at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Okay. And then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me your persons and take back your goods for yourself. And Abram says, no, you keep all of this. I want it to be known that only the hand of the Lord blessed me, not because you did anything to make me rich, Abram tells the king of Sodom. And that's that's it. And just just like that, Melchizedek disappears. Now, when I say he disappears, I don't mean it was like, poof, he was there. Abraham's talking to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abram. He turns to talk to the king of Sodom and poof, Melchizedek's gone. I don't mean that. I don't mean, you know, this mysterious, he's there and then suddenly he's not there. But I mean, when I say he just poof, he's gone, he's like, the story just suddenly stops talking about it. The narrative just suddenly quits doesn't say anything. It doesn't say, you know, like normally. And Melchizedek returned to Salem. No, it just, it just ends. And it goes right back into this part of the narrative about Abram dealing with the king of Sodom and everything else as a result of him defeating the Shaladamar and the other kings from the north. And so Melchizedek's appearance in Genesis just seems rather random and almost irrelevant to the narrative of Abraham rescuing Lot. I mean, it's a nice story. It's great to have Melchizedek's blessing. But really, his appearance and his actions have nothing to do with telling the story of Abraham returning from rescuing Lot and his interaction with the other kings. I'll prove it to you. Okay? You take these two little paragraphs that I just read. Just take them out of chapter 14. Pretend like they don't exist. And just read verses 1 through 16, and then pick up with 21, and read through that. What do you lose from the narrative of Abram rescuing Lot and his interaction with the other kings by not having this event of Melchizedek? To the story of rescuing Lot, what does it do? Nothing. It literally has no impact whatsoever on the story of Abram rescuing Lot and his interaction with the other kings. That's why this appears so random in the story. It's like, wait a minute, what's this got to do with rescuing Lot? Other than this is the actual moment it occurs. That's the only thing it has to do with the story, is that's the actual moment in historical timeline when Abram's walking back from Damascus and interacts with Melchizedek and the other kings. This whole story out of rescuing Lot is not affected in any way by removing the story of Melchizedek. This makes the whole event of Melchizedek in the middle of the narrative seem so random and irrelevant. It's like, why? Why put this in there? 
It has nothing to do with rescuing Lot. It would be like me telling Randy about fixing some problem on an engine I've got and then just randomly dropping in that, by the way, I had a hamburger while I was doing it. Like, so? Who cares about the hamburger? Did you get the engine fixed? Right? Why? Why put this in here? Because this moment of Melchizedek is not about Abraham, nor is it about rescuing Lot. It is for a future moment, one that will only make sense of this story of Melchizedek and Abraham long after Abraham is dead, long after Lot is dead, long after all the other kings are dead, and even after Melchizedek himself is dead. Many centuries after they are all dead, in fact, does this story make any sense? So to understand why Melchizedek matters, we look at the only things we know about him, that he is the priest of the Most High God and the King of Salem. So let's start with this whole thing about him being the priest of the Most High God. The very next place in Scripture where Melchizedek is mentioned, as specifically as the priest of the God Most High, is in Psalm 110. So let's go there. Actually, I'm going to read the whole thing. Because the whole thing bears relevance to who is Melchizedek and why does he matter. So 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this is really significant here in Psalm 110 because Psalm 110 is recognized as a messianic psalm. It describes the character of the Messiah when he appears and the things that the Messiah will do when he shows up. And as it pertains specifically to Melchizedek, as a priest to God, it describes the Messiah as a priest for God Most High, who will be a priest forever. Wait a minute. An eternal priesthood? The Aaronic, Aaron and his sons, the guy that was Moses' brother, that guy, that Aaronic, that priesthood was but for a single lifetime. Then that priest dies and one of his sons takes over as the next high priest. So that one in the Mosaic Covenant is never mentioned as eternal. It's a human priesthood that can't be eternal because it's filled by humans. But here, I mean, it was a lifetime appointment, but it's not eternal. And here, Melchizedek's priesthood is described as being eternal. 
okay? Melchizedek in Genesis just shows up and disappears. And we never hear about him again because he's supposed to look like an eternal priest. Leaving out the details of Melchizedek's life is on purpose because the part that only matters about Melchizedek's priesthood is that it's going to continue on forever. And that the Messiah, when he comes, will take on this role of an eternal priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For the Jewish people who are really, really stuck up on the Mosaic Covenant, this is hard to accept because it implies that the Mosaic priesthood will end when the Messiah comes. Now you can say, well, maybe. I mean, he just kind of rolls that priesthood role into his and it's all just one thing. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's true, but it ain't the same. This is different. This is a big, big, big difference in the priesthood and what he does in the role. And here it specifically refers, this is just changes everything. This idea of an eternal priesthood that's different from the Mosaic covenant priesthood, this is big. And then, okay, well, fine, fine, fine. The Messiah is going to be an eternal priesthood, fine. But how do you connect this to Jesus? How does Jesus become like this Melchizedek character? Well, Jesus specifically refers to Psalm 110 when he's having his confrontation with the Pharisees. Just turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. So Jesus starts out in this big conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and everybody else in Matthew chapter 21 when he makes the triumphal entry. And he he really ticks off the leadership by making a mess of everything in the temple, overturning the money changers' tables. Then the next day they come at him like, who are you? What do you think you're doing? And he gets challenged by the leadership. He tells the parable of these two sons in the parable of the tenants. Then we get into chapter 22 with the parable of the wedding feast and responding to the challenges from the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then the Pharisees give a challenge to him about taxes. They think, oh, we're going to set a trap for Jesus. And he answers them like, give to, you know, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And then the Sadducees, which don't even believe in the resurrection, are going to challenge him with a question about the resurrection. And he responds, you guys don't understand the answer to your question because you do not even understand the word of God. And then deals with that. And then some other guy thinks he's going to catch Jesus by saying, which is the greatest commandment? You know, one of the lawyers. And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so now everybody's taking their best shot at Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priest, and the lawyers. Like, you know, Jesus defeating the first three is pretty impressive. But defeating the lawyers, that's really impressive. Because everybody knows how hard it is to turn the tables on a lawyer. And he does. And then Jesus turns the table on all of them and says in verse 41 of chapter 22, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the Holy Spirit calls him, the son of man, the Christ, calls the Christ Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That is Psalm 110, verse 1. Then David calls him Lord. How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any questions. Look, fathers do not call their sons lords. It just don't happen. But yet here in Psalm 110, David, and this is absolutely clearly unequivocally a Psalm of David, says to his descendant, one of his sons, you are my Lord. How does that work? It only works when that son is a greater son than David himself, which is what Jesus has become, which is what Jesus did during his entire earthly reign. And it's because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus is a descendant of David because of Mary's bloodline, but he is greater than David and the Lord of David because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by the blood of another man. And this entire psalm, driven by the idea of what the Messiah will be and what he looks like, is Jesus ascribing to himself. I am this guy. Right? Of course, he doesn't say that right there in chapter 22 of Matthew, but the other places in Matthew where he describes himself as the Messiah, as the Christ, and lays claim to that role, means now everything in Psalm 110 is about Jesus. And then we finally get to Hebrews. Yeah, you want to turn to Hebrews now. But, but keep your finger or something marking Psalm 110 because we're coming back to it. Don't, just don't give up on it completely. I should mark my Bible so I can get to these places quicker. Let's just start in verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In these days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of an eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now jump over to chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth portion of everything that he is first. And by translation his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a command in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Through these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, referring to Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi, Aaron, and all the descendants of Aaron, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The argument that the writer of Hebrews is making here is that Melchizedek is greater than the than the Mosaic covenant and Aaronic priesthood simply because as a descendant of Abraham, Aaron paid tithes and offerings to Melchizedek and received a blessing from Melchizedek, meaning that Melchizedek was greater than Aaron and his priesthood because that priesthood received a blessing from the priest Melchizedek. I know it sometimes can seem a little confusing and can seem a little hard to follow, But the point is, that's how Melchizedek is greater than the Mosaic priesthood and the Aaron as a priest. And that Jesus is now a priest like this Melchizedek, not like Aaron, which makes Jesus' priesthood greater than that of Aaron. All of that is how Melchizedek becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus and how Jesus is greater and bigger and more important of a priest and his priesthood will, is lasting forever over the Aaron priesthood. But it's more than just the priesthood. Because Melchizedek wasn't just a priest. Melchizedek was a king. He's the king of Salem, it says. So Melchizedek was not just a priest, he was also the king. And his definition of his name means Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And then also he's the king of Salem. And by definition, Salem means peace, which means that Melchizedek is both the king of righteousness and the king of peace at the same time. And so for Jesus to be like Melchizedek, he has to be a priest of the most high God in an eternal priesthood while at the same time being the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Let's take a quick peek at Isaiah chapter 9. Well, before we go there, let me come back to to Psalm 110. Because verse 4 in Psalm 110 is where it talks about Jesus being like the priest of Melchizedek. But everything else in Psalm 110 is talking about this awesome conquering king who is the most powerful king that anybody's ever seen. And he isn't just the most powerful king that anybody's ever seen. He's the most powerful king that anybody's ever seen because the Lord God made him that powerful. Look back at Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, referring to the Christ, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In ancient culture, in this time of the Old Testament, one of the ways that you displayed in a symbolic way your superiority over the kings that you had just beaten and defeated was they were brought in. They had to get down on their hands and knees in front of you. And you literally used them as a footstool as you sat on your kingly throne. Either they would get out on their hands and knees and you would put your feet on their back. Or if you were really ticked off at them and really wanted to humiliate them, you would make them lay on the floor and you would put your feet across their neck as a footstool. And God is saying, this is what my Christ is going to do to all those who rebel against him. All those who refuse and resist him You're going to get beaten. You're going to lose. You're going to lose bad. And then you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to become a footstool for this king. And he describes this other powerful ruling strength of this king. Verse 5 of 110, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment against the nations filling them with corpses. And he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth and he will drink from the brook by the way which refers to the Kidron Brook there, the, the Kidron Valley right beside Jerusalem. And therefore he will lift up his head. This is what people understood the Messiah was going to look like when he shows up. This is why when we read in the Gospels, often with confusion, why everybody expected Jesus to turn on the Romans and lead this massive army in rebellion against the Romans totalitarian rule overthrow it set up the throne of David there in Jerusalem and have a bunch of Romans come in and kneel down on the floor in front of him and put his feet on their backs and necks as a footstool because this was what they understood the Christ to be I can have a little more sympathy for Peter when he says now that you're the Messiah are you going to make your establish your throne Right? We read that and we go, Peter, what the heck's wrong with you? Why are you doing, why are you saying that? Because this was what he understood the Messiah to be. And when we read Revelation, this Psalm 110 is what we expect to see when Jesus comes back. I mean, John the Apostle is crystal clear. There is absolutely no confusion here about what Jesus is doing when he comes back in Revelation chapter 19. And he is coming back as this guy, Psalm 110. This is the King Jesus coming back. He's taking names and kicking butt. That's what he's doing. The first Jesus came in peace. The second one's coming back as a conquering king. So now we're ready for Isaiah chapter 9. Just verses 6 and 7 from Isaiah chapter 9. Right, This is Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah to be born. And it says to us, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When a king's son is born, what is he referred to? What is his title? 
Prince. The name Prince even implies an element of ascending to the throne at some point. And here, this child that is born will be called the Prince of Peace because when he grows up, he will become the King of Peace. The King of Salem. And then we have Micah chapter 5. So yes, you don't have to go to Micah chapter 5. I'll just do this. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Here in the very prophetic word of Micah, predicting the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem itself, for the purpose of setting the captives free, of seeing the brothers of Israel return to the Lord and to the land of Israel, and to make their dwelling secure and to be their peace. This is the King of Peace. This is Jesus, just like in Psalm 110, the ruler over everything. There is not one square inch of the universe that isn't King Jesus's. King Jesus looks at every square inch of this universe and says, mine. Not one square inch does he concede to anyone else. I am the ruler of all. Nothing do I concede. And then I mentioned Revelation chapter 19. I'm sorry, but we just can't look at this this idea of this ruling king without looking at Revelation chapter 19. We'll just do verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and has a name written that no one knows but himself. He Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is nobody higher, nobody greater, no authority larger than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
And this part about it being written on his thigh as well as on his robe, the thigh was considered the, the element of strength in the Old Testament in the Hebrew world. You would remember in some places you'll even read in the Old Testament where a person was to slide their hand under the thigh and make an oath to a person, making an oath to their greatest strength. That's why you have the righteousness and the King of Kings written on his thigh. Wow. This is what it means to be after the order of Melchizedek, a priest and a king, an eternal priesthood and the king of righteousness, the king of peace, an eternal kingship to go with the eternal priesthood. And we, we also have to recognize something else very significant, hugely significant. This is really, really big. God specifically separated the office of civil ruler and the office of priest in the Mosaic Covenant. The king could never be a priest, and the priest could never be a king. Because humans don't do those jobs well when they're put together under one person. That's just too much power. Too much power for one man to hold both the office of priest and king because it's too prone to just abusing that power. I mean, if you are the priest, you are the highest priest, the complete high leader of the religious group, and you're the king of that people group, who's going to oppose you? Who's going to question you in your decisions? No one, everyone, everyone is underneath you in authority. If you think, well, I don't think the king and his kingly role is living out this morality role listed in our religious writings. I'm the priest. I'm the high priest. I get to say whether that's actually living out the moral law or not. And if you look at the priest and say, I'm not sure you're living out the right role here. I'm the king. I can say it's whatever I say. But here, and so God specifically separates the role of king and priest for the human leadership. And no one can handle that much power, at least not any human man, but not Jesus, the Son of God. He and he alone can handle that much power. The king of righteousness is righteous enough to be a just, fair, and righteous king while also serving as the high priest. He can handle that much power. And that's what it means for Jesus to be a priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. So, this is great, fantastic. Love what you've brought out here, Brian. So what? Who cares? What does this have to do with me trying to understand how to be an obedient, faithful follower of Jesus? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question, so what? I've got a few thoughts. And the first one takes us to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is almost at the end of the Old Testament. It's the easiest way to find Zechariah is go to the book of Matthew and take a left. Go past Malachi and there you are in Zechariah. But we're going to go to the middle of Zechariah chapter 6. Verses 9 through 15. And here is one of Zechariah's great visions that he has about God and the temple. Because Zechariah is about rebuilding the temple and reestablishing both 
the role of priesthood and the role of a civil king in the land of Israel after their return from exile. So chapter 6, verse 9, And the word of the Lord came to me, that's Zechariah, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobajah, Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. And he shall sit on his throne and there he shall be a priest on the throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobajiah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Here, Zechariah sees this vision of a person who takes on both the role of priest and king. And is crowned the king and is also the priest. And he builds the temple. And he just isn't just a king. His thronely kingship and his throne itself, his throne chair, is in the temple. He rules as king from the temple while also serving as priest. This hadn't happened yet. The promise of Zechariah chapter 6 has not been fulfilled. It hasn't happened yet. And in a sort of already but not yet, almost but not completely way, we are the ones who draw near to build a temple that is not made of stone or wood, but a temple made of flesh and bone. Because the Holy Spirit, as He resides in us, we are a temple. And therefore, we are a partial fulfillment of this promise, even today, but not yet complete. One day, Jesus is coming back. And this whole scene from Zechariah will come to fruition. And we will see it with our own eyes. The second thing is that, have you offered yourself to the King of Glory, King Jesus? It says there in Psalm 110 that His people will offer themselves to Him. Have you offered yourself to King Jesus? So when I say offered yourself to King Jesus, the King of glory, I'm asking, have you offered yourself to Him for belief, not just in, in salvation alone? Of course, that's the very first thing. He is your Savior. He is your King. But have you offered yourself to Him for whatever role He would have for you in His church? And not just this physical church called Castle Rock Baptist, but the church at large across the whole universe, the small Catholic sea church. Third thing is we can trust our king and priest to justly and with righteousness carry out both the role of priest and king. It's a scary thing to see that much power of priest and king consolidated under one man unless that man is Jesus. We can trust our Savior 
the lover of our soul, to be both priest and king for us. And then the fourth thing is, because Jesus rules over all things and concedes nothing to Satan. Look, when I say he concedes nothing, I mean he literally concedes nothing to Satan. We should actively seek to redeem all things in this life for Jesus. Building engines. We should seek to redeem building engines for Jesus. Playing music. We should seek to redeem all of music for Jesus. Every genre. Not just the stuff that's good, like country and western and rock and pop. Even rap. Even hip-hop should be redeemed for King Jesus. Even classical music should be redeemed for King Jesus. And we should accept whatever role God has for us in redeeming whatever aspect of life and creation it is that he's assigned us to be an active participant of redeeming it. Look, everybody in this room is a redeemer. You are redeemed and you are a redeemer. You have been redeemed by King Jesus and you are being called out to redeem some portion of the universe that belongs to him as its redeemer agent. Yes, you're doing it through the power of the Spirit. Jesus is actually doing the redeeming, but you're the agent of redemption. Some of us, we just need to be the agents of redemption in our families around us. And Lord knows that is the hardest thing in the whole world. I would much rather try and redeem hip-hop than trying to be the agent of redemption for my own children. Because it's tougher. That's even harder. I'd almost rather redeem politics than try to redeem my own children or be the agent of redemption for my own children. Recognize that Zechariah 6 hasn't happened yet, but that we are partial fulfillments of that through being the temple of the Lord, offering ourselves to the King of glory, putting our trust in this Jesus to be both king and priest for us, and then to actively be agents of redemption in the areas that he's called us to be. That's more than I can do in the rest of my life on this earth. So I'm figuring that's probably enough for you too. You could probably find a fifth or a sixth good application out of this. And you're welcome to. And if you find a fifth or a sixth, by all means, please tell me. But I know these first four is more than I can do with the time I have left on this earth. And I figure that's probably enough for all of you and everyone else around us. So, thinking on this idea that Jesus is worthy of being both our priest and our king, let us worship him in that way through our song of response. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you, Jesus, are our great eternal high priest and our eternal king of righteousness and king of peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish both righteousness and peace in us so that we may give it to those around us and thereby be your living examples to those who need you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.